welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Let's pray it together. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Father, as we come before you, that is our prayer, that is our heart. Our heart is, Lord, that you, our Father, would be lifted up this morning, that you would be praised, that you would be worshipped, that you would be seen as the exclusive, separate, um, unique, amazing being that you are, that there is no one like you in all of the universe. There never has been and there never will be. You are perfect. You are eternal, omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient. You are everlasting, unchangeable, and you are merciful and gracious. You are just, you're righteous. Lord, you are amazing. And Lord, we pray as we open your word that we will understand more of who you are. We also pray, Lord, that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, even as we just read about. Lord, that that's coming in the future. And we pray, Lord, that we'd have a taste of that now in our hearts. And we'd have a taste of that here in our community as you bring revival and renewal. We pray for all the churches that are preaching the gospel this morning, Lord, that your power would go forth from those places. We think of uh, Center Church and um, the View Church and Revival and Faith Bible Church and Menifee and um, all the churches that are in this area for impact, Lord. We pray as the gospel goes forth, that it goes forth in power and that your will is done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray, Lord, that you would give us our daily bread. We come in with all sorts of concerns, of physical concerns, whether they're financial concerns or relational concerns or health issues, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would be our provider in all these areas. We pray, Lord, that you give us spiritual bread this morning. As we're in your word, we pray, Lord, that you would feed us, that you would feed us through the word and through the table this morning, Lord. Um, we pray, Lord, that you'd forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And as we read that one, we're reminded that we must forgive. Lord, that there's, if there's any area in any of our hearts where we're not forgiving others, that we would right now, before you, promise to release those people from their debt. Lord, it's contingent here. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We pray, Lord, you give us hearts of forgiveness. And if we don't have that now, Lord, that we would have that by the end of this time with you, that you would change our hearts in that area. We pray, Lord, that you lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, Lord. There are many temptations, many trials that we have to go until we come before you. And we pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us for those, that you would be our power, be our strength, be our deliverance, Lord. We pray that we would turn to you for help in all these areas. And we thank you, Lord, that yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, Lord. And Lord, as we come before you, Lord, I just want to pray and ask you, to, to keep a new covenant promise you've given. You said that you would sprinkle your people clean with water, that they shall be clean from all their uncleanness. You promised in Ezekiel 36 that you would give us new hearts and a new spirit you put in us, that you remove hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh. And Lord, I pray for anybody that's here that has a coldness towards you or apathy or cynicism or has just become distant to you, is resistant to you. Lord, your people that are not walking around with new hearts, that are not walking around with hearts of flesh, but their hearts have become stone. Lord, we pray that you would keep that new covenant promise and give them this morning that new heart, Lord, that new heart for you, that heart is soft and loves you and enjoys you and no longer is apathetic and resistant towards you or cynical, callous, unfeeling, Lord, that we would feel a love for you and a joy for you that we didn't have when we walked in. We pray, Lord, too, for your covenant promise that you will put your spirit within us and cause us to walk in all your statutes and be careful to obey your rules, Lord. We pray that be, becoming, uh, that we become more and more like your son from gathering here in this place, that your spirit would now soften our hearts and make us new. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, guys, we are in, we're finishing out a doctrine series 
And we're going to look at the doctrine of our future hope. And so we're going to look at what do we as Christians have to look forward to. And the Bible speaks, guys, of an amazing future that we have because of what Jesus has done. Um, and if we have a clearer vision of that future, it'll help us to persevere. It'll help us to keep going. And um, my favorite example of this is the story of Florence Chadwick. It's from the 1950s. And um, she was a swimmer, and she, she got into the water right off of Catalina, and she's going to swim to the coast of California, 26 miles to be the first woman to, to swim from Catalina to the mainland of California. She had already been the first woman to uh, successfully swim across the, uh, the English Channel. And, and the weather that day was super foggy, it was super cold. Um, she had some boats next to her to accompany her, and, um, and she swam on. She swam for 15 hours. Um, as she begged in the, in the water to be taken out of the water, she felt tired, she felt done. Her mother in the boat alongside told her that the shore was close, and if you keep going, you're going to make it. Finally, physically and emotionally exhausted, she stopped, and she got pulled out of the water. And when she got out, she, she looked over, and she discovered that the shore was only one mile away. And in the news conference the next day, she said this, All I could see was fog. I don't want to make excuses for myself. But I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. And that's true of us too, guys. If we can see the shore, we'll make it. How many of you have come in here to this place and all you see is fog? You're emotionally, maybe physically exhausted. And you need to see the shore. And that's what this is about today. We're going to look at resurrection, heaven, new earth. We want to see the shore. We want to see the thing that we have in front of us. Because if we see that, then we're going to make it. And what's interesting, guys, is actually the study of heaven is an underemphasized part of eschatology. Eschatology is the study of end times. And it turns out that talking about heaven is actually one of the underemphasized parts of eschatology, which is very strange, guys. It's very strange that we as Christians get way more fixated on our particular view of the millennium or the tribulation and don't think very deeply or very long about where we will spend billions upon billions of years. So we can argue endlessly uh, about what's going to happen in a 1,007-year period and neglect the actual place we will live forever. It's a little odd. I think a lot of times we tend to major on the minors. turns out that no major historic creed or confession actually comes down on you know, issues of the millennium and tribulation, and there's a reason for that, because we should really focus on the majors, which is um, our final state. And from there, we can actually start to, you know, fine-tune it and argue and, and, and debate in good ways about all the other details, but we need to start with thinking about heaven. If we were to think about heaven this morning, there's a couple of things that will happen. One is it'll stir our desire for God himself. The more we think about heaven, the more we'll think about God and more we'll have desire for him. Um, if we think about heaven rightly, it'll also create Christian unity, as I talked about, that we get divided over a lot of end times things, but we all actually agree on the final destination. It will also, guys, equip you to speak naturally and enthusiastically about your hope. You know, when you're sharing the gospel with people, it helps a whole lot if you can speak very naturally and enthusiastically about your future hope and what Jesus has given you. It will equip you to encourage others. It will free you from excessive dependency on this life. You won't feel like you have to gobble up every single little joy in this life because you know what you have coming. And it'll prepare you guys to die well which is one of the most important things that we do every Sunday morning, is to prepare you to die well. That will be the test of whether our time together was fruitful, is if you're ready to die, right? So what is heaven? Heaven is the place where God is most fully present to bless. Now, God is present everywhere. We know that from Psalm 139. But he is most present to bless in a place called heaven. Two things to notice about that definition. Heaven is a place. A lot of times people say, well, heaven's not really a place, it's more of a state. No, it's a place. It's a place. When I write it, I capitalize it. I capitalize it because it's a place, like Texas or San Diego, but better, right? Um, it's a place in that that's where Jesus' body went. When he ascended, his body went to a place and is in that place right now. So it's an actual place. It's a place, this might surprise you, that is not far away. And this is weird, but when you read the passage in Acts, when Stephen's being killed, it says that heaven opens and he can see Jesus there. How close does this place have to be if all it takes is God parting a little, you know, veil, and he sees Jesus and knows it's Jesus? How far away can a person be, and you know who that is, right? So heaven is not far away, but it's a place that we don't normally see. Heaven's also, guys, is a place that's all about God. 
I think that's really important as we think about heaven because it takes no special work of God for you to want to go to heaven because you don't want to go to hell. It takes no special work of God for you to want to go to heaven because of the stuff. It does take a special work of God called regeneration for you to want heaven because you want God, right? That takes a special work of God. So it's a place, it's a place where God is most present to bless. Another thing that might surprise you about heaven is it has two phases. There's an intermediate state, which is what it's like right now, but that's not the final state. Later, we'll talk about there's a, a new earth, a new uh, place that we dwell in a resurrected body. So when you think of heaven the way it is now, that's not the way it'll always be. It'll one day become one with heaven and earth like we read this morning. So let's start with intermediate heaven. Uh, intermediate heaven is the way heaven is right now. It's not like there's different levels of heaven. I'm talking about there's different states of heaven. So right now, if you're a Christian and you were to die, you would begin to enjoy heaven as it is now. Philippians 1.20, Paul says this, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame at all, and that with full courage, now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain on in the flesh is necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. If you're a Christian this morning, you're not here just to exist. Okay, You're not here just to sit around and wait to go to heaven right? Some people can get in that phase. You can get in that phase. You can get discouraged and just go, you know what? I'm just waiting to die. I'm just waiting for God to take me. Why doesn't God take me? You're here for a purpose. You know, people talk about some Christians are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. Um, If you're truly heavenly minded, you'll be very earthly good. You'll be more earthly good because real heavenly mindedness makes us to see that we have a mission here while we're on this earth. That's what Paul's talking about, right? He says, I'm going to remain on the flesh because I have something to do here. Guys, if you're here and you're alive, and you are, okay, you are here and alive, then God still has a mission for you like he had a mission for Paul. No exceptions. There's no Christian here that, you know, God doesn't have a mission for you anymore and you're just kind of waiting around to, to die, Okay? If you're still alive, he has a mission for you. But when we pass away, when we die, those of us who are believers in Christ, to die is gain. He says that, Philippians 1.21, to die is gain. He says, depart and be with Christ is far better, far better than here. We need to hear that because we actually have it pretty good here. And so we need to hear that no matter how good you have it here, it is far better to be with Christ. There is something better for you when you die. And yet, there's something even better than that coming later. There's something actually better than the way heaven is right now. And Paul talks about that in 1 Thessalonians 4. Take a look at it, 1 Thessalonians 4. Guys, when we encourage people um, that have loved ones that have passed away that are believers, we'll often encourage those people by saying that their loved one is in the presence of God, which is true. But Paul actually encourages them a different way than that. He doesn't say, you know what, they're in heaven and they're in a better place, which is true, but that's not the way Paul tends to encourage people who have lost loved ones. And that's not what he does in 1 Thessalonians 4. Take a look at verse 13. He says this, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who have fallen asleep or died, that you may not be grieved as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and who are left at the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep or died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and are left will be caught up together in the clouds, and we will meet the Lord in the air, and we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words." So if you're a Christian and you were to die today, your body goes in the grave, your spirit goes to be with the Lord in heaven with Christ, which is far better. But then sometime in the future, guys, Jesus returns, his second coming, and he will draw your body up out of the grave. He brings your spirit back with him. He combines body and spirit again and gives you a new resurrected body. Okay, That's the thing that's even better than the way heaven is now. Isn't that well? One moment.
I have a diagram? I know, I know, you're shocked, you're shocked. Well, don't clap yet, let's see how it goes. Um, so here's you, there's stick people, of course. When you die, there's you. Body goes in the grave, right? Spirit goes to be with the Lord. We'll have like a, like a throne here, Jesus on the throne. Don't worry, we're not breaking a commandment by doing that because it's not a very good drawing. Your spirit would go to be with the Lord in heaven, which I said is not very far. Okay, that's what Paul's talking about. Body dies, body goes in the grave. Spirit goes to be with the Lord. This is far better than this, right? Then at some time in the future, Lord returns, right? Like it talks about in 1 Thessalonians 4. He returns, he brings the spirits of those who, um, who are trusting in Jesus that have been with him, enjoying him. This body comes out of the grave, not a zombie, but made totally wonderful. Spirit goes in, made new. We meet the Lord in the air right? Then those of us who are still alive at that time also go up and get new resurrected bodies. That's what he's talking about there. This, what's coming from here on, is even better than this, which is amazing. And notice, guys, from that passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, that, that, that Christ's coming is personal, physical, powerful, visible, and extremely loud. It says it's cry of command, voice of an archangel, the trumpet of God. Jesus calls out with that loud, powerful voice, and people come back to life. People come back from the dead. People that are disintegrated because they've been dead like Abraham for thousands of years, his parts all come back together. His body's made new, comes up, his spirit is put back with his body, made new, resurrected body, meeting the Lord in the air. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that amazing? The power of Jesus. Jesus said, don't marvel at this. There's a day coming when the Son of Man is going to come, and he'll speak, and the dead will come out of their graves. Jesus has the power to do that. He has the power of life and death. He can give life to any person, and he will give life to our mortal bodies then. And at the same time, guys, those of us who are still alive, don't know if that'll be us, but if that is right there, we also be raised and given new resurrected bodies. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 15. Take a look at that. You want to look at this. 1 Corinthians 15, 50. Because you want to be able to find these, super important. He says this, I tell you this, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we shall be changed. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. And he says, for this perishable body must put on imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And we're going to be feeling that right here as we're in our resurrected bodies. I've told you guys before, I want to be buried, and I do want to be buried, by the way, because I want to be like, I want to be buried. I want the whole body put somewhere where it can come out real discernibly. You know, I don't want to, like, ashes are going to have to be collected all over the place. You know, there's an aesthetic to this, guys, okay? I'd like to be buried in Joshua Tree. I would like to be buried in Joshua Tree. So when he shouts out that command, can you just imagine me, like, coming up out of the dirt and kind of shaking myself and going, yes, you know, in Joshua Tree. That would be the place to do it, right? And then we're given these resurrected bodies and we're made new. Guys, Paul comforts people that have um, saved uh, loved ones that have passed away. He comforts the bereaved, not by telling them about life after death, but by telling them about life after life after death. Okay? The resurrection is about life after life after death. Life after death is great. It's far better. But life after life after death is even better. And that's what he tends to focus on. And what's really cool in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, when he talks about meeting the Lord in the air, that word there, that Greek word is apontocene. And that word is a cool word. That was a word used in that time of an official greeting party that would go outside a city to welcome a king back into their city. That, 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 it, was, it was called a potsy. It was a greeting party. Guys, we get to be, whether we had died in Christ before he comes back or we're alive, we had transformed May new, and we get to be a part of this greeting party where we welcome Jesus back into the world to reign on earth. And, and that's why we have those physical resurrected bodies is because what's coming after this, guys, is not that we go back here, but that we go here. So what's going to happen is he's going to make the world new. Bing. 
just like your body, your resurrected body, your resurrected earth. And that's what's going on in Romans, or sorry, Revelation 21. Take a look there. We're going to spend most of our time there. This is the passage that Sarah read so well. He is going to make the whole universe new. Take a look at Revelation 21.1. It says, Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth. For the first heavens and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. That new heavens, new earth thing, saying new heavens, new earth, it's a way of speaking of the whole universe. Remember back to Genesis 1.1? He created the heavens and the earth. It's a way of speaking the entire universe. The whole universe made new. And in the middle of that new universe is the new earth. Because, guys, heaven as it exists now, it, it will cease to be. That will actually be combined with the new earth. And we see that in Revelation um, 2.1. It says, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And so what you have is heaven and earth coming together, the, the dwelling place of God and the dwelling place of man becoming one place. That heaven will be permanently bound, permanently welded to earth. Notice that heaven comes down. That's the only hope, guys, for this world, is that the life of heaven would invade the earth. You know, a lot of secular thinking, there's all these ways that we think we can make the world better. And none of those things turn out to work. It seems like every time we try to solve a problem, we make it ten times worse, right? And the real solution would be for God to bring the life of heaven down to earth. And that's what we pray for, guys. That's what we pray for this morning in the Lord's Prayer. When we prayed, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we were actually praying for something that will ultimately happen when he comes back to make the world new. So the world ends, and you know, there's all kinds of movies about the end of the world. There's all kinds of speculation about the end of the world. The Bible gives the best possible end of the world, doesn't it? It's a huge act of God's recreation and making all things new. And so the center of this new universe is the new earth, and what we see there in the new earth is we see that God comes to dwell with us. Look at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and he himself will be their God. What's super cool about the way that the Bible describes the final state is the final state is not us going to live in a place designed for God, but God coming and living in a place designed for us. That he makes a new earth and comes and dwells on that earth with us. And guys, God's presence makes all things right. Look at verse 4. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more, neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain, for the former things have passed away. You guys know people in your life that when they're around, it's like impossible to be sad around them? You know people like that? People that like bring so much joy that it's like, you know, I was really bummed out and I spent some time with this person and I just, you know, I just couldn't stop being happy. Guys, God is ultimately that kind of person. When he's around, it's impossible to be sad. And so he will make all things good for us. Sometimes people talk about like, in heaven will we remember our lives? You ever wondered that? Because there's so much pain in this life and if we were to remember the pain of this life, could we possibly be happy in heaven? Guys, God doesn't make us happy by erasing our memories. He makes us happy with his presence. He, he doesn't make us happy by making us forget. He makes us happy by showing us his face. Heaven is a place where God is. Um, and then in, in the center of that new earth is the new Jerusalem. Take a look at verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of the seven last plagues spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And the city of God, guys, comes down from heaven. And what's really interesting is what does he say about the city? The city is what? Is actually his bride. There's a lot of symbolism in the book of Revelation, and these symbols all mean something. They're really important. But it turns out this city that comes down from God is God's people. And he talks about his people, guys, as, as a bride. That the Lord, guys, loves you as a groom loves his bride. In Isaiah 62.5, it says, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. I, I've officiated a lot of weddings because I did college ministry for a long time, and that's how you leave college ministry, is by getting married. And so I uh, did a lot of weddings, and one thing that's really cool about standing right up there in the front next to the groom is you get to like, be a part of the reaction that he has when he sees her coming down the aisle for, for that first time. And, and I always tell the guy, like, really focus in this moment, because this is like one of the best moments of your life to see this. And um, that's how God feels about you. God feels like that about you. He rejoices over you like a bridegroom rejoices over the bride. 
Um, this city, it comes down out of heaven. Look at verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. He showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a, a rare jewel, like jasper, like crystal. It, it, what's really cool about this whole idea of like the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven is this is a city that already exists. This city we'll live in, in the new world, is actually a city that already exists. It's right now here in heaven, and, um, and it's populated by all those who are believers that have gone before us. They're already enjoying the life of that city. In Hebrews 12, he says, You have count, come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gatherings, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to spirits of the righteous made perfect. So there is a city already existing in which those who have died in Christ are already enjoying, and that city in the end will come down and land here in a new, newly made world. And guys, you are a citizen of that city. Even though you've never been to that city, you're a citizen of it, right? Paul talked about that in Philippians 3. He said, we're citizens, our citizenship is in heaven, where we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus, who will transform our lowly bodies into his glorious body, right? We, as a church, guys, are actually a colony of that city. So there's this heavenly city to come, that's going to come and, and meet earth. And we, right now, as we live out here as a local church, are actually a colony of that city now. We're actually living some of that life now, not perfectly, obviously, but we're being changed and transformed and made more and more like citizens of that city are at this moment. And soon that city will invade and make the world new. Notice the city is um, one people, Old Testament, New Testament. Look at verse 12. And it had a great high wall and 12 gates, and the gates had 12 angels, and the, the gates... Um, and the gates, the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed on them. And on the east, three gates. And the north, three gates. And the south, three gates. And the west, three gates. And the walls of the city had twelve foundations. And on them were written the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. You have a really cool symbolism here in Revelation to show us something about this city, this new Jerusalem to come that, that, we'll, that we'll live in. And it's, and it's got twelve and twelve, right? It's got, it's got the twelve apostles, in the base of it, and it's got the 12, um, the 12 tribes of Israel. What does this tell us? It tells us that God has one people. He has one people, Old Testament, New Testament, that become one city, one people that love him. You know, guys, God has one bride, not two. He has one bride, all believers, Old Testament, New Testament, Jew and Gentile, all barriers removed, and that shows us something about that, the 12 and 12. Notice the shape of the city. This is strange. Look at verse 15. And the one who spoke to me had a golden measuring rod, and he measured the city and its gates. And the city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with a rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length, width, and height are equal. What shape is a city? Yeah, even more than a square. It's a, it's a cube, right? It's, it's squared on all, in all dimensions, right? It's a, where was the other cube in Scripture? One other cube in Scripture. The Holy of Holies. We know from 1 Kings 6 and from Ezekiel 41 that the Holy of Holies was a cube shape, right? So what does that say about this place? The city that we're going to live in, in the world to come, has the exact same purpose of the Holy Holies. It is the very dwelling place of God. We'll actually live in a city that is the Holy of Holies, right? We'll actually live in the very presence of God, and that's why there's no temple, right? Look at verse 22. I saw there was no temple in the city. For the temple is God, the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb, and the city had no need of light or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And it's a city, guys, of worshipers from every nation. Look at verse 24. And by its light the nations will walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day or by night. And they will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. There's this cool theme throughout um, the, the prophets about that someday the nations will bring tribute to Israel. You read about it over and over again, that Israel wasn't meant to just be an isolated people, but that at some point in the future, they envisioned a time when the nations will bring in tribute. It was like animals and gold and all this stuff. that They're going to stream in and have offerings to the Lord. Well, that gets fulfilled here. That gets fulfilled here as the nations are streaming into this city. All the believers from all the nations where the gospel's gone forth. And it speaks of these people as what? What kind of people are they? 
the kings of the earth, right? What's that about? That goes all the way back to Genesis 1, how we were called to be the stewards and kings and queens over this place. We were meant to rule this place under God, to be those who would, who would steward the place and rule over it. But of course, you know, through the fall, we lost that. But you see that coming back. The kings of the earth, he's speaking of believers from every tribe and people and tongue and language. And it says in verse 24 that they're going to bring their glory into it. This is a really cool thing too. Guys, in the creation mandate in Genesis 1, we were called to create God-honoring culture. We were supposed to create culture here on earth and develop this place in such a way that it would be a whole culture like centered around God and glorifying God. That we would all labor to serve and love one another and have a culture that would glorify God. And of course, we've done that well sometimes, but mostly poorly, right? And in the new world, though, this will happen, guys. We're going to worship God, not just in singing, but with all the cultural forms that he wants us to, by building things, by planting, by our work, by crafts, by um, visual arts, by literature, by music, by food, that we would create a whole human culture that glorifies God. Isn't that awesome? That what was planned in Genesis comes to pass here. That's what he's talking about when he says they'll bring their glory into it. That all the beauty of all the different cultures, anything that's been done well and right, be redeemed and used in that world to come. All the diversity of all the world, building a beautiful culture centered around God. Um, It's also going to be a city that's secure. Take a look at verse 25. It says, and its gates are never shut by day, and there is no night. So there's no concern there. In fact, if you look at the height of the walls of the city and stuff, the walls are actually not very high. They're actually quite decorative. The, the, the gates are, are left open. And back in this time, that would have been very surprising because, God, guys, God will not allow anything into the city that is evil. And guys, that's one of the functions of the final judgment, actually. When you look through the Psalms and you look through the function of the final judgment, one of it is, is to make the world right. Right, that he comes to judge the world and set all things right. If you look at verse 27, he says, Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Um, one thing we know from history is that evil, when it infects a thing, an, organism, a, 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 um, an organization or a family or a nation, tends to grow over time, tends to take over. God is not going to let evil infect this new world that he's created. Evil will be quarantined far away from this kingdom of God, from from his city, from the new world. It's not going to be kind of a replay of the fall or anything like that. He's going to quarantine evil far from it. And like I said, that's one of the functions of the final judgment. Final judgment is about giving justice against sin, giving the punishment due for sin. But it's also, guys, about protecting the new world. He's going to remove all sources of evil from it. And the Psalms talk about that. They talk about the judgment and the evil being no more, or taken away from the land, or removed. And guys, that actually is a problem for us sinners. Because <laughs> we're part of the problem. You know, when we think about this world and the way, reason why things are the way they are, we all have played a part in bringing evil into this world, in, um, in duplicating that evil and, and making that evil worse, right? We've all been a part of that. We've all contributed to the evil of this world, haven't we? Let me ask you more personally. Have you contributed to the sin in your home? No? Have your kids? What about you? Okay, wait, let's back up. I feel like you didn't hear me. Have you contributed to the sin in your home? Okay, hands up. Hands up. All right, let's just stretch. Ah. I feel like, like either something theologically is desperately wrong here. Or you didn't feel free to speak or what. But okay, we've all contributed, guys, to the sin in our homes. We've all contributed to the sin in this world. God sent his son, though, to make a way for us to enter this new world that he's created without any sin. Jesus came to do that. Through Jesus, God found a way to remove the sin that we've infected ourselves with and that we infect everybody else with from us so that we could be welcomed into this new creation and not destroy it. And not make it a disaster. And not make it the same kind of nightmare that our sins tend to make places. Uh, Jesus did this by, he saved us from the penalty of sin. If you trust in Jesus, you're forgiven completely of all your sin, past, present, and future. He's removed the penalty of your sin. He's also, if you trust in Jesus, he's currently saving you from the power of your sin. 
Okay, so that throughout your life, we call it sanctification, he's gradually removing the power of sin in your life, and that one day, he's going to save you from the presence of sin. That you won't even have any ability or desire or any more sin-producing faculties. That's what that glorified, resurrected body is about. It's a body that can't sin. And it's the only kind of body that can be safely allowed to dwell in the new creation. And guys, God will only remove the presence of sin from those who want him to, right? You have to want him to, right? All others must be quarantined, quarantined far away from the world to come. Guys, hell is a place for those who do not want their sins removed. They don't want the penalty of their sin removed. They don't want the power of their sin removed. And they really do not want the presence of sin removed. That's why there is a place called hell. It's a place of punishment for sin. It's also a place to keep sin far from um, the new creation. In Revelation 21, 27, he says, Nothing unclean will enter it, nor will anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Heaven is a place for people who mourn their sin, who've repented of their sin, who desperately want Jesus to take away the penalty of sin, who desperately want Jesus to take away the power of sin in their lives, and who desperately want the presence of sin removed. And for those, their name is written in the Lamb's book of life, which is amazing. You know, it's amazing if you think about it. If you're trusting in Jesus, your name's written in a book. You know, the Lamb's book of life. All those who are citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem to come. Do you want that? Like, you could have that today, you know? You could have that today. If you surrender your sin and come to him, you can become a citizen of the new Jerusalem and therefore a citizen of the world to come today. You don't have to leave here um, being one that would be shut out of any of this. This can all be your hope today. And there's no like, hey, well, you know, I'll come when I'm ready or I'll, I'll figure it out or I need to clean up my life first or whatever. All those are evasions, Okay. And you clean up my life first. So all those are evasions. Those are evasion tactics as the enemy saying to you like, hey, you're not ready for this. You're not like, all you have to be is a sinner. A sinner that wants to repent of your sin and trust in Jesus. And so we got the, the center of the new uh, universe is the new earth. And the center of the new earth is this new Jerusalem. And the center of the new Jerusalem, super cool, is God. Take a look at this. In, um, in verse 1. And notice when I read this, um, Revelation 22.1, notice when I read this, there's echoes of Eden here, okay? When I read this, it's going to sound very much like Eden. It's going to sound like a return to the beginning. It's going to be like in The Hobbit, where you start in the Shire, you return to the Shire, right? It's, it's a return to Eden. You're like, there's something familiar about this. There's something here that feels very earthly. There's something that feels like this is something I should want and desire, maybe even something that we had. There's something wonderful about this. J.R.R. Tolkien said that we all long for Eden, we are constantly glimpsing it. Our whole nature is still soaked with a sense of exile. And so listen for the echoes of Eden. Look at verse 1 in chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street, a river flowing out of it. So there's a river flowing out of it. Where else was there a river flowing? Out of Eden, right? If you go back to Genesis, you'll find that there was a river flowing out of Eden. This image of a river flowing out of the presence of God is actually an image taken from Ezekiel 47, where you have the temple, and you have water trickling out of the temple, and as it goes, it gets bigger. It starts with a trickle, and then it turns into a stream, then it's a river, then the guy's like swimming in it and can't walk in it, right? That there's this, this river in Ezekiel 47 that gets deeper as it moves out. And, and that river in Ezekiel 47 gives life everywhere it goes. It even turns salty water into fresh water. And, and so what we're seeing here is we're seeing a symbol of God's presence, giving refreshment and life and joy wherever it goes. Guys, God's presence to bless will flood the whole new earth. Habakkuk 2.14 says that, that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So you've got this river coming out of the, the presence of God in the middle of the city. And then you've got something else for me. And look at verse 2. And also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit. 
yielding its fruit in each season. And the leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations. Once again, you see something from Eden, right? Remember that they were kept alive by a tree of life. And that was taken away from them because God didn't want them to stay in a state of separation from them. Once they sinned, God didn't want them to live forever in a, in a way apart from him. So he took that back and he must have stored it here with Jesus because here it is. It's back. And he's giving them life, guys. He's giving life to their bodies. Notice something from this passage. There will be time in the world to come. Sometimes people talk about like heaven and it'll be timeless and stuff. We actually know from this passage there'll be time. He talks about seasons, different fruit and seasons. So we won't be timeless. It'll be unending time to enjoy him and enjoy one another. God will provide us with food and healing. See that with the leaves and the fruit, right? We'll always be finite beings that are in need of God sustaining us, and he'll do that in this way. Uh, it's really cool, guys, because Revelation 22, it really gives the whole impression of like, like a beautiful like central park. A beautiful city with like a central park with God himself dwelling in the middle. Like Eden, but better because God's dwelling there all the time. Remember God would come down in the cool of the day and see him? This is God's permanent dwelling place with us in this place. Look at verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed. So all the curses of Genesis 3 removed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there and his servants will worship him. So the center of our place that we will live will be God himself. Notice it's the throne of God and of the Lamb. Kind of interesting, isn't it? So one throne for God and the Lamb. Got a little shout out to the Trinity there, right? There's one throne for God and for the Lamb. And and this is where we find, guys, the absolute treasure of heaven. Look at verse 4. And they will see his face. So this is it, guys. We're talking about zooming in. We're zooming in to the better, 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 and we're getting to the best possible place. It says, they will see his face. Guys, we will see his face. You will see God's face. If you're trusting in Jesus, you will get to see God's face. That's amazing. The theological term for that is a beatific vision, which what it means is the vision that makes one blessed or happy. So you're going to see the ultimate source of every joy you've ever experienced in this world. You'll see it in his face. Psalm 1611 says, In his presence is fullness of joy, and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. I want to ask you guys this. I've asked you this before, but do you think of God that way? Do you think of God seeing his face as the ultimate experience of joy, excitement, exhilaration, happiness, everything being in the right place, everything being perfect, no need for anything else? You're just amazed. You think of God that way. I was sharing the gospel with a guy a couple weeks ago, and I just offhandedly said something weird, I guess. I said, you know, God's the happiest of all beings. And he laughed. And, and I said, oh, did, was that funny? He's all, I have never heard that before. And I said, well, it's true. And I showed him Psalm 1611. I said, God is the happiest of all beings. And he's like, well, that's a totally different view of God than I've ever heard. Right? But that's the biblical view of God, that seeing his face would make us so unbelievably happy that we'd get to see him and be with him and enjoy him. I mean, where do you think all the happiness comes from? (laughs) Ultimately, it's coming from him. And we'll all enjoy the world in the light of his beauty. Take a look at verse 5. And they will have no need of light of the lamp or of the sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Really cool thing about this is, is that in this creation, everything we see and interact with, we see because light's bounced off of it, right? So you turn on a light, light bounces, goes in your eye. They didn't know all that probably. But they see, we see things by light bouncing off of them, right? What he says here is he says, we all have a new way of seeing, and that new way of seeing is by the glory of God, that somehow we're going to see all the things in the new world because they reflect God's glory, and we'll notice that. Like you see the Psalms, and it talks about the glory of God in the sky and all this stuff, and we don't notice it most of the time. But in the world to come, we're going to enjoy all of creation and see it as an actual gift from God, as something that shows forth his glory. Guys, imagine living and enjoying every good thing in that place and knowing that it's a gift from his hand. It's a gift of his love. And and this solves two problems that people have with heaven. One of them is, is that some people will say, well, heaven is about worship. It's about God. And so it's an unending worship service. Okay? We're never going to get tired of singing. You know, 
And there's a singing element. I mean, if you look in Revelation 4 and 5, you're going to see some singing and, and worship like that. Other people will say, you know, that heaven's about everything but God. I'm going to golf great. I'm going to fish. I'm going to do all these things, right? Both of these are really kind of missing something because it, th- this one's missing a lot more. But the first one's missing something too because when God created a place to, for him to be worshipped in, he didn't make a stadium. What did he make? He made a world. And he has all kinds of ways for us to worship him. In 1 Corinthians 10, 31, it says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all things for the glory of God. And so when you think about the new world, you should think about that it is all about worship, but that worship's going to have all kinds of forms. He's giving us resurrected bodies for a reason, right? An unresurrected body can sing, I'm sure. But a resurrected body is needed to do all the other things that we're called to do in our lives to worship him. And so it'll be a place of unbridled human happiness and in a place that is full throttle worship of God. So how should this affect us? I want to give you three things. This is going a little long. I'll make it quick. Three things. If you believe in this hope, this is your hope. Three things. They all start with E. The first one is evangelize. Some of you guys are greatly disturbed by passages that speak about hell. Okay? A couple of them were read this morning. They greatly disturb you. They should disturb you. Okay? If the reality of hell is unbearable to you, the best thing you could do is help us depopulate that place. Okay? The best course of action is not to try to explain it away or act like it doesn't exist. If it really bothers you, and it should, the best course of action is to take the gospel out to help depopulate the place. Okay? We live in a time when Jesus has weakened the enemy so that we can take forward the gospel and people can be snatched out of hell. We live in that time. Share the gospel. Okay? The fact that we're still here means that God still intends to save. Right? You know? And there's no reason to believe, guys, that God couldn't if we prayed and we made ourselves available for this, that he would not bring revival. Some of you guys have, you think you know exactly where you are on the end times calendar and you're just assuming nothing's ever going to get better and you know there's never going to be another wave of the Spirit of God at work. You have no reason to believe that. There's no reason to believe that we can't pray for revival and see it. A group of us have been doing that and we've seen people get saved from that and we should be praying for renewal starting in here and going out into our community. Um, We should evangelize because there's still 7,148 people groups that have never heard the gospel. They have no access to the gospel. Um, Jesus gave us that as a mission, that we should take the gospel of all nations. He said that the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony, and then the end will come. You want to see Jesus? Get the gospel as unreached people groups, because when they're all reached, he's coming back. That's what, um, that's what Matthew 24, 14 says. And guys, this is a completable mission. Um, Holly and Lorian are both in places with unreached people groups. Be a part of that mission. So evangelize. Second, endure. Many of these passages we looked at this morning were given to ordinary Christians so they would be able to endure tribulation. The New Testament talks about a great tribulation coming before Jesus returns. But even if you don't live that long, you will have tribulation. Okay? Jesus said that. John 16, 33 says, Jesus said, um, I've said these things that you may have peace. In this world, you will have tribulation. Take heart, I've overcome the world. And when you endure that tribulation, when you endure that difficulty, the best thing you can do is get a view of the shore, right? 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And guys, there, is, there are great rewards for those who endure serving the Lord. As you're going to be surprised when the Lord returns to give rewards to his people for their service and their endurance, he will reward his people ridiculously well. Okay? You're going to be surprised at the liberality of God in rewarding the endurance of his people. It is worth holding on. We're not just here to just exist and wait till he returns. We're here to abound in the work of the Lord. Jonathan Edwards said, I resolve to live with all my might while I still live. And that's what we should do. Last one, encourage. Use these truths to encourage one another. In 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, encourage one another with these words. If your talk about the end times doesn't increase people's endurance or evangelism, you're doing it wrong. 
Okay? If, and I know, especially for some of us men, we get more fixated on this area than ladies tend to. If your talk about the end times does not increase people's evangelism endurance, you're doing it wrong. We should be using it to encourage one another. Show them the shore, guys. Show them the shore. You know when these long-distance swimmers, when they go out, they have boats next to them? You know what the boats are for? Two things. Encourage the person to keep going and look out for sharks. We have that role for each other, don't we? Encourage one another to keep going and help each other in the spiritual battle. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the hope that we have and that it's not a vague hope and it's not a it's not like a questionable hope, Lord. In this culture, we use hope in such a weak way. This is a surety. This happens. You're going to make all things new. And you're going to give that to every single person who trusts in you. And Lord, I pray for everybody in this room, Lord, that we would all make it to that final day. That when your son comes with a cry of command, the voice of an archangel, calls people out of the grave with his mighty voice, Lord. Pray that every single person in this room will be there because they've all trusted in your Son. Lord, help us to be faithful to each other, to pursue each other, to pray for each other, to encourage one another so that on the final day we can look at one another and just see your work through the church, through your people, and persevering each other, Lord. We pray as we take the Lord's Supper, Lord, that you would give us perseverance, that you give us strength. As we hold the bread and the cup and we remember the precious body and blood of your Son, Lord, we pray that we would know that we have been given citizenship completely by grace. As we take those in our hands, that it's a free gift. We thank you so much for that. And Lord, as we take the Lord's Supper, we pray that you would feed us. Lord, we feel like that swimmer that was so weary and so psychologically and physically and spiritually worn down. Lord, we pray that as people take the Lord's Supper today, that they would be filled and strengthened and renewed. Lord, give us the joy of our salvation. Lord, give us a renewed spirit. Make us alive. Make us live while we still live. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.